Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Hey, buddy. Good afternoon, Scott Self. How are you? How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Well, um, we're going to talk a little bit about race today. Oh, Um, no. Should should listeners run away? Probably. (laughs) We've done a couple episodes on abortion. Why not make it? Why not just make everybody our enemy? I just didn't know that you had any opinions on this topic. (laughs) 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 Yeah, this is a time where there are lots of cultural discussions going on, both on social media and on the news um, and in newspapers, bona fide newspapers and in on college campuses. And there's a lot of it's a very volatile time concerning race, isn't it? You know, um, yeah, this this episode's coming out a little bit later than when we record it. As we record it uh, on August 12th, this is the day after Joe Biden has selected uh, Kamala Harris as the VP nominee. And, you know, it it is interesting that it doesn't matter uh, left, right, or center. The discussion about race is central to the way that her um, selection is is playing into the, I mean, you know, you can't, I don't think you can not talk about it. Right. I, I think there also can't not talk about gender, but these identity, um, elements of identity, I think they're playing in our prefrontal cortex. I mean, they're right in the center of what we're thinking about as a culture. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I think that is reflective of, you know, where our culture, what our culture is trying to do and how it's trying to reconcile. So in the show notes, Cole, I have put links to the three articles we're going to um, reference today. I I would say, I don't think we're reviewing these three articles, but these three articles kind of represent different perspectives on a central theme, which is how do we find racial reconciliation? And specifically, what is the church's responsibility as members of the way what is our responsibility to that discussion even amongst other cultural responses that may or may not align with what we believe is the way forward well i you know i hope they don't i hope that we are i've I've long argued i guess i'm spilling the beans at the very beginning but i've long argued that um i think we could do a better job if we just decided to do our job i'm talking we the Christians, mm. uh, that, and I actually would suggest that historically in the United States, when up until up until the the sixties, that much of what happened with egalitarianism and racial egalitarianism was driven by Christians, it was driven by people who were making arguments based upon a strong theology. I mean, I'm not just talking about the Quakers, but Wilberforce, and you've got, you know, a, a lot of the uh, the argument against slavery in the 19th century was couched within a strong theology, um, and because of that, we were leading in that conversation. And then, for some reason, and I think one of the articles that we uh, have referenced for today tries to unpack that, but for some reason. We kind of found ourselves on the wrong side. 
Well, I th- and if we don't talk about our history and our reasons and try to unpack this, I think it gets constructed for us in ways that are not always true. If I had a nickel for every time someone came up to me and said, in a secular circle, you know, if Christians would have done this, or if Christians would do more of that, or if Christians in history would have done this, then things would be a lot different. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't think that's the history of what Christians did or said. So that's what I mean by uh, people will construct the narrative for us if we do not talk as we are talking now about Yeah, about our own history. I got you. I got you. So let's start with Jonathan Chait's article, because I think, if nothing else, it kind of exposes the problem, the problem we have in terms of reconciliation. Jonathan Chait's article in The National Interest is, uh, is the anti-racism training industry just peddling white supremacy, which I think is an interesting question. This is about Robin DiAngelo's um, program that's for lack of a better term, pedal to corporate America on how to um, reverse white supremacy in in, uh, in the workplace. In the, in the workplace, yeah. Mm-hmm. In a nutshell, I think Chait is arguing that this is just another manifestation of white supremacy, which is ironic because the point is supposed to be uh, to talk about race in in welcoming ways, and yet he suggests that it. It ends up peddling white supremacy. Talk to me a little bit about your gut reaction to the article. Again, it's lo- it's linked to in show notes if you want to read it. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say very quickly that Robin D'Angelo is the author of the book White Fragility, which spent how many months at the top of the New York Times bestseller list? It was a book that was purchased for many um, reading groups, including one at our university to read and to discuss, and it's been held up as part of the solution, Um, even in Christian circles, uh, part of the solution of racial animus. And the argument that that people make against it, which I think gets to the um, argument Chait is making against the whole industry, is that it is a circular argument. This this is at the core of the criticisms of D'Angelo's book and and way of dealing with this, which is if you are white and you begin to question the charges that are levied at you, that itself is evidence of your fragility. That is the definition of a circular argument. You as a white person are so fragile that you cannot even see your own or admit to your own biases towards people of color, if I say, now just a minute, that's proof of my fragility and the argument is over. Well, not only is that is it circular, but it's a terrible argument to try to get people to come together and discuss if you're looking for a way forward. And so uh, this article, he, he puts in the middle of the article the, the chart, which I believe Scott has been withdrawn, has it not? I believe it has been. Yes, that appeared in the Museum of African American History that talked about, um, I'm looking at here, aspects and assumptions of whiteness and white culture in the United States. And just reading down the big bullets, rugged individualism, family structure, emphasis on scientific method, Protestant work ethic, uh, religion, 
and so forth. And probably many of our listeners are familiar with this. It was in the news and made made a lot of splash there. And so the, the, the criticism that, for example, logical thinking is white and that if you teach in a university, as I do, uh, this is kind of, it's in my, my bailiwick because I teach rhetoric and we talk about the benefits of logical thinking for argumentation. I believe D'Angelo would say I'm participating in the white culture of oppressive nature of, of white culture. And, and Shate is saying that is part of the circular reasoning that does not assist the argument or assist reconciliation. Yes. Mm. Yeah. No, I, I think you're, yeah. I think Chait's argument kind of, uh, uh, centers upon, uh, Kendi's, uh, description of the, the problem. It's the achievement gap with a longstanding difference in academic performance between black and white children is a myth. Um, he argues that the gap merely reflects badly designed, um, structures, whether exams or more infrastructure that they expose inequalities within systems. And so that D'Angelo's description of, you know, what are white values um, is, is problematic at best. And, you know, this, this kind of comes down to, there's a, there's a longstanding kind of reflex within our, within our DNA to think about folks in terms of descriptors where we, uh, assume, you know, that that's where stereotype threat comes from. But we do this a lot in, uh, in very technical ways. For example, in leadership circles, there was, you know, for, for years and for, for centuries, we thought about good leaders based upon traits and, and discussed whether somebody had the traits that are necessary to be a good leader or they didn't have the traits and, you know, it wasn't until the 20th century that scholars started to look at this and ask, and we're talking late 20th century, but scholars began to look at this and ask, is it really true that somebody is a born leader? Because isn't it possible that someone develops a set of even just, let's just call them skills, and that traits is really a, a placeholder for um, entitlement traits is really a discussion about whether somebody fits in terms of personality or fits within a, within a context of race or fits within a context of gender, this, uh, archetype that we imagine a good leader should look like. I mean, in, since most of our audience are Christians, think about the way that Samuel selects Saul to be king. Hmm. The criteria are that he was a head and shoulders taller than everyone else and that he was beautiful and that he had, I, I believe I'm, I'm going by memory, but I believe it also mentions his shoulders or something, <laughs> but he's tall, he's handsome and he's strong. This guy looks like he would be a good leader. Everybody knows he wasn't, but that's the traits approach. And when God says he's going to select the next King, he selects the uh, the son who is treated as a slave by his family and forced to attend the flock. There's nothing in him that is impressive. In fact, when Samuel goes out to Jesse's house to get all of his sons to find out who's the king, they didn't even call David in. 
They, Samuel asks, he goes through all of the sons and he says, well, he's not here and it's supposed to be from your house. Do you have any other sons? And they're like, oh yeah, I mean, David, right? So that that kind of approach where we, I, I know I've taken a, a turn here on leadership, I don't mean to, but my point is that we will sometimes create archetypes and then we will ask people whether they fit in those archetypes or not. And that is that's gross. I think it's gross. I think it's nasty. I think it's something we have to fix in ourselves. And I'm not sure that D'Angelo's approach fixes that. I think it, in fact, it ratifies it. I mean, at least I, I'm understanding that as Chait's argument, that it ratifies this view that people have certain traits and we have to respect those traits. Instead of respecting what people, who people are and what they might learn and what they might develop and how they might grow given the right context. Okay. I just really yammered for a long time. No. Well, I'm thinking, let's just be specific for a minute. Okay. Um, One of the things on this list is uh, that it is a mark of white culture to pay attention to clock time. So the question I would ask D'Angelo is, is a person who shows up on time for work uh, is that valuable, and can it not be taught to someone whose culture may not value that? And is it necessarily part of the culture, or is it part of running a business efficiently that is that is divorced from anyone's culture? In other words, is showing up on time for appointments necessarily a white thing, or is it necessarily something that is that gets things done? And some cultures value it more than others. Yeah. And I think you're saying there are things that get that that get work done or get society done um, that can be developed and taught that used to be thought of as inborn, not clock time, but leadership is, is your example. And that uh, we may just be having having a discussion about those in a more specific way. Yeah, absolutely. That that's that's the core of my argument. My my other frustration is okay, this came up, I mean this this whole move really took off with Starbucks. Do you remember it was was it 2 years ago the Starbucks closed all of their stores for a half a day. Maybe it was for a whole day, I don't remember. Yes. But let's say let's get, let's be generous and say it was twice as much as I think. It was for a whole day to have racial sensitivity training. Right. <laughs> if you believe that that solves anything, um, then, then you've swallowed the, the pill that they were trying to put out there. It was, that was about brand management. It was not about solving racial reconciliation. Right. It can't be about that. And sure, they lost a penny or two, but it was good advertising. I'm being cynical, but... I think I have a right to be cynical about this. Mm-hmm. It was good advertising. It was good brand awareness. I mean, you, I think you do need to ask, to what degree is uh, what D'Angelo peddles, both within the book and within this kind of this program, really about reconciliation? And I think Chait has a really interesting uh, perspective on this, and part of his criticism uh, D'Angelo says, capitalism is dependent upon inequality, 
or an underclass, if the model is profit over everything else, you're not going to look at your policies to see what is more racially equitable. Uh, Truth be told, she's kind of speaking my language, but Chait notes, presumably D'Angelo's ideal socialist economy would keep in place at least some well-paid professions, say a diversity consultant, which earns her a comfortable seven-figure income. I love it. I love it. This is an industry. Let's be honest. It is an industry. It is it is part of industry. And industry and capitalism is really good at appropriating uh, new concepts and monetizing them. So I right. I think Chait is on to something in in kind of asserting that there is um there's a there's a lot wrong with this solution. But it for me. Cole, that brings up a really important question, which is what is the solution? Uh, and so let's go to our our second article to kind of move in that direction, which is an article by um, Ward Connerly in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, this is a great article called uh, America Isn't a Racist Country. And the title itself, like some of the arguments he makes, is meant to be is is meant to draw your attention to the language he is using. I want to draw a distinction which I think Connolly is drawing implicitly, which is there is a difference between saying a racist is a person who hates another person in his heart who is of a different ethnic background, and a racist is a person who has observable behavior that is that violates the laws of a country based on race. Mm-hmm. I think his article is really trying to pull that apart because he references the history of what's happened in the 20th century about how far he has come, how far people he knows have come who are not white because they uh, exercised their opportunities for education and work and stick and things that you would probably call bootstrap mentality. Um, but that, that in doing so, um, it is, he is providing evidence that actually America is not racist. And I want to, if I can, read a couple sentences for you. Okay. Our history is the best proof that America is not a racist nation. A nation of white racists wouldn't elect and re-elect a black man as president. Those who assert that the U.S. is racist must, at a minimum, address this historical fact. My second reading draw is where he draws, I think, a very useful distinction between an executive order that John F. Kennedy issued uh, versus an executive order that Lyndon B. Johnson Mm -hmm. Um, that had similar language but was much different. So John F. Kennedy issued Executive Order 10925, which used the term affirmative action for the first time. This order instructed federal contractors to, quote, take affirmative action to ensure that applicants are treated equally without regard to race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Whereas President Johnson issued an executive order that changed the focus of affirmative action from non-discrimination without regard to race to one that seeks results based on race. And that's a quote. So opportunity versus 
results is a huge, huge difference. It's why we have arguments like any standardized test that that, uh, produces results of more uh, whites doing well than blacks doing well is therefore a racist exam. That's that's where uh, that executive order is was one of the main places where that language turned and began to be recognized in the law, and so he Ward Connolly. His argument here is that we have so many opportunities for anyone in America who wants to take advantage of education and work and um, control of his or her own destiny that. If you really look at the historical record of this country, it's hard to make the argument that we are a racist country, unless you do it the way Lyndon B. Johnson started it by saying, if there are skewed results, you are witnessing evidence of racism, which I think is a terrible argument and is never correct. This is going to be linguists talking to linguists for a second, but I think one of the major problems in this whole discussion is that we end up using the word racism with different sets of semantic features, depending on the context. I agree totally. So it's, uh, you know, racism is my refusal to uh, hire a person because of their race to work in my store because I don't want people of that race working in my store is equated. I mean, it's the same term, but that's a different set of semantic features than um, the SAT is systemically racist, right? Right, right? We're really talking about two different things. And to bring those together and try and argue about them is really using the same term for two different semantic sets of semantic features. So what do we mean by semantic features? Well, that's where we, you know, when we're talking about uh, my refusal to hire a black person to work in my pizza shop, that is traceable to my agency to my decision, my conscious decision, my overt decision to discriminate against a person based exclusively upon their race. That is a different meaning set than the one where we say the SAT is a a racist construct. It's not the SAT's fault. And frankly, the people who designed the SAT weren't rubbing their hands together, looking how they could discriminate against uh, populations, right? Right. And so it's the agency is removed from that and the intent is removed from that. Um, And I think then to turn around and say, hey, wait a second, nobody intends to be racist anymore, which, okay, I'm going to set that to the side over here, but the nation doesn't intend to be racist anymore. We were a systemically, we were more systemically racist in the past than we are now, but that doesn't mean that we've fixed things. And I'll give you an example. I hope this works. Boy, I have a lot of stories about being in Lowe's, don't I? (laughs) Uh, Listeners, you're listening to um, Scott's life here because he spends at least 12 hours a day in Home Home Depot or Lowe's or whatever they have. What do they have in Chattanooga that's local, Scott? Oh, also Elder's Ace Ace Hardware. Oh, right, Ace Hardware. (laughs) Scott knows how to use every tool they sell. Go ahead. Um, and Harbor Freight. Harbor Freight. Yeah. What a great place. Um, so I, I was in the store a few weeks ago 
uh, yeah, I'm in Tennessee. And a few weeks ago, I was at the at the paint counter at Lowe's, and um, I was waiting my turn. And the two gentlemen that were in line in front of me were working with a lady and trying to get there. A black lady helping them, and uh, they both had. I am not exaggerating when I say this. Overtly white supremacist tattoos. I'm talking swastikas. I'm talking the, you know, the Nazi eagle. Uh, I'm talking the 888 for HHH. All of them. All of them there. All of them represented. Now, they needed paint. So they're at the paint store. And I'm standing in this uh, situation, looking at it, thinking to myself, hey, how do these people walk in? And how are they not barred at the door for wearing Nazi paraphernalia on their skin. I mean, we probably would stop them at the door if they were wearing a white sheet and a hood. We'd probably stop them at the door if they were wearing a T-shirt with a Nazi insignia. But here it is with a swastika. But here here they are with those on their skin. Not only that, but we're demanding that this woman help them because they're the customer. Mm -hmm. And... As I look at that, I'm looking at a racist. I mean, I'm assuming, unless he's converted and can't afford the tattoo removals, that may be possible. There's a whole, there's a billion things that were going through my brain. But the fact that he gets to be there in that space, in that way, unconfronted, is in part due to my unwillingness to confront him, the store's unwillingness or the, the corporation's unwillingness to have a policy about exposed white supremacist tattoos and the expectation that this woman is obligated to help this man because he's a customer and she works for Lowe's. Nobody other than the person with the tattoos is acting uh, in intentionally racist ways, but we've created an environment where the white supremacist is unconfronted. We don't do anything about it. I, I know you won't like this term, but there is a kind of aggression in that system. Uh, There's a kind of aggression experienced, I'm assuming, by the woman who has to wait on a person with white supremacy tattoos, with tattoos that that articulate that he believes he is better because of his race than she is, and yet she has to help this gentleman. That's systemic racism. It's not that there is... uh, within the system agency that I am, I'm a participant in it because I didn't, I didn't speak up. She's a participant in it, even though she's a, she's an African-American woman and she is the, the recipient of the aggression. She's still a participant in it because she doesn't walk away and refuse to serve him. We are all participants in it, but we don't necessarily have agency. And the, the reason I'm bringing this up, Cole, is I am not interested in conflating the difference between the white supremacist and the, the system. Those two things are not the same thing. The, the system doesn't necessarily intend to be racist, but it is. And I think we have to think about it. We have to talk about it. We have to ask questions to one another. When when black men are more likely to be killed by police than white men, then we have to talk about it. 
Um, when we look at our churches and we notice that there is a majority of one race in the building, we have to talk about it. I'm not sure that the solutions work, and this is where I come back to, this is why I wanted us to, to talk about D'Angelo first, is because I'm not sure that the solu- whatever solutions the world has to suggest we should use work, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. And I'm, I'm a little bit frustrated that every time we set out to talk about systemic racism, it turns into the question of agency. It turns into a, a defense of, well, I'm not racist. Uh, we didn't say you were. We said that the the system is so flawed that everyone involved could be not racist, and yet still we would marginalize a, a, a person. Scott, I'm going to push back against you a little bit. I like it. And I'm going to use uh, a quote from Ward Connolly before we leave his article to do it. He's talking. He talks about when black people and white people want to marry each other but are forbidden by law, that is systemic racism. Mm -hmm. When black people are not allowed to vote, even though the Constitution gives them the right to vote, that is systemic. But here's a quote. The claim that America is systemically systemically racist is a false narrative that fuels racial paranoia, division, and hatred. If we can identify specific institutions or people within them that are racist, we should confront them. If not, it doesn't serve us well to allow a false presumption of guilt to guide our conduct, end quote. You and I, over the course of this uh, podcast, this is episode 40, uh, you and I have often talked about the difference between trying to talk about individual behavior versus collective behavior, and that's where you and I depart often because Mm -hmm. I am about... The individual, if the individual is breaking the law, confront the individual. If the individual's being a jackass, confront the individual. So in your Lowe's situation, I would say that a man standing with a paint can to buy paint, the mere fact that he is decorated a certain way that um, indicates his alliance with a certain group That is not the same as violence. That is not the same as a threat of violence. That is the equivalent of him walking up to her and saying, I think I'm better than you. And she can say, "Um, okay, is that cash or charge? Because he is not enacting violence merely by wearing a tattoo. And she, contrary to what you said, I think, she could in fact say, hey, manager, uh, I don't want to serve this person. And if that costs me my job, so be it. She could have done that. Absolutely. She could have done that. So we're getting into the definition of coercion, which is where we were last time. I don't think it is coercive for her to have a job that might be threatened if she says, I'm not going to serve this person because he's a jackass. But in fact, a man standing with a paint can and money in his hand with a tattoo is not the same as someone coming to my front yard and burning a cross in my yard with other guys standing around with guns. Those are two different things. So I resist this idea of. Can I play the devil's advocate with that exa- with that difference? Being that you're the devil, then yes, please do. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just just I'm just taking it to the absurd to see what happens. Okay. You could you could if you don't like it when people put burning crosses 
uh, on your yard, you could just sell your property and move somewhere else. It's my property and property rights are, the word I want is? Sacred. Property rights are sacred and they are immutable. Oh. Um, and someone is on my property holding guns, that's far more threatening than at my workplace with a can of paint, not mentioning the tattoos and not saying, look at my tattoos and what they mean, lady. I just, those two things are not the same to me. And I, I'm, un, and finally, if you and the store owner and the cashier believe that that guy is being racist, then that guy is being racist. It has categorically nothing to do with me. The, um, the second thing I wanted to, <laughs> to respond to is, um, and, and for the listener, this is about the fourth to the last paragraph um, <laughs> okay. that you read. The claim that America is systemically racist is a yeah. false narrative mm -hmm. that fuels racial paranoia, division, and hatred. Okay, that argument stinks to high heaven. Um, wow. It's that is a claim that is not su necessarily supportable, or he hasn't supported it here. That's a claim. I'm not. I'm not at all interested in it. But he says something in that next sentence or the third sentence that I really think illustrates the difference between where you and I are coming from. Okay. And that is, he said, if not, it does not serve us well to allow a false presumption of guilt to guide our conduct. That term to me is um, a shibboleth. It, it tells me a lot about the worldview that is brought into this article. And that is the assumption that I'm saying it's your problem, that you're a part of, a, that you Cole are guilty of that you are responsible or that you are guilty in a way. And I think one of the challenges of talking about systemic racism is that we oftentimes are talking about issues where no one person is at all guilty, but that nonetheless persons are oppressed. Yes. And so I, I want to be, I just want to be careful here and note that most of us who argue for for systemic racism, most of us, at least the ones who think about it, don't ascribe guilt. It's wrong, but it's not necessarily that somebody is wrong. It's not that Cole is wrong. It's something we have to address, and the unwillingness to address it is problematic. But that doesn't mean that you're at fault or that you have guilt. And that guilt is, for, I mean, from my point of view, it's a shibboleth. It, it, it tells me what worldview we're dealing with. Explain to the non-sons and daughters of Abraham what a shibboleth is. <laughs> well, so we oftentimes use it in uh, linguistic terms. It's, uh, it was the story of, boy, I can't remember specifically which tribe. Was it the Gideonites? Look, either you're a Christian or you're not. Do you remember? No. <laughs> How embarrassing. Uh, I think it was the Gibeonites, but anyway, uh, a group, uh, one of the tests was to ask them to say the word shibboleth. And if they mispronounced the, ter the word, uh, one of the consonants in the word, then you would know they weren't from, right? It's like saying, uh, say the word fried pie. And if they say fried pie, they're from the South, right? <laughs> so instead of saying fried pie, they said shibboleth. And so the shibboleth is the... Um, the word that's used, but the pronunciation of the word uh, indicates where you're coming from. And, and so in linguistics, we use that term shibboleth to refer to um, 
anything that is a marker uh, of where somebody is coming from, whether in worldview or whether in dialect, um, but it's a marker. And you're saying that this business of white guilt is a shibboleth because it, it means a whole lot more. Just those two words, he's trying to invoke a certain worldview. No, 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 no. I don't, I'm not accusing him of, an, of, of uh, trying to do something. Oh. I think I think what I'm saying is it indicates to me where he is coming from. The worldview is that that systemic racism is about guilt, and it's not. Okay. The guy, the guy, the guy with the tattoos has a different problem. If I may, go ahead. I have returned to the first article that criticizes D'Angelo and her book and her programs, and um, the writer of the article writes. He is quoting D'Angelo at first, quote, it is crucial, writes D'Angelo, for white people to acknowledge and recognize our collective racial experience, end quote. And the author of the article says the program that she puts on does not allow any end point for the process of racial consciousness. Racism is not a problem white people need to overcome in order to see people who look different as fully human. It is totalizing and inescapable. And I've read this other places too, in quotes, Scott, I've read this other places too that get at what you're saying. Um, there is no way out. Right. The people who say that systemic racism exists, that um, if the white people have a privileged position over non-white people, this is not a problem that's ever solvable. It's just to constantly be brought up. And so if there's, if there's guilt that's attached to actions, but the actions can't ever be undone because they'll never overcome, that is a problem. That man no. at the Lowe's counter could undo all of his tattoos, but he's still a participant in the problem as you would articulate it. Yeah. Well, I no, there is no, the, the part, part of the problem with the guilt paradigm, it's part of the paradigm that assumes that there is a solution to this without recognizing this is, this is not merely an American problem. This is not merely a problem of black and white. You don't have to go far into any other culture. You don't have to go very deep to discover that this is human. This is a human thing we do. Uh, I, I'm telling you, when I was in the mountains of Peru, I heard people talking about those dirty Venezuelans. It mm -hmm. doesn't, you don't have to go very far to hear the very same thing being done in a, in a, with, a, with a different context. And that doesn't make us better. It doesn't make us better than another culture or just, a, it doesn't make us okay because other people do it. I think, I think what, what we're engaged in in this conversation about systemic racism is trying to be better than we have been. But that doesn't mean you fix it because you don't fix it. As soon as we, uh, I, let's just imagine that we ever got to racial reconciliation uh, and that there was never a single instance of uh, either overt agency-driven racism or systemic racism between black and white. We'll figure out the next one real quick. That's what we as humans always do. And so I think it is a perennial struggle for humanity and for any society to work against that temptation. And by the way, just so we're clear, this is the first challenge of the church. This is the first thing we engaged in as a church. The very first problem we had was 
what are we going to do with these Gentiles who want to be a part of the way? Because they're dirty, they eat nasty things, um, they uh, they bring bacon sandwiches and shrimp cocktails to the potlucks. <laughs> we had we had to have this conversation at the very beginning, and the fa- we we oftentimes refer to as Mars refer to Marcion as the first Christian heretic. He wasn't, but he's the he was a bad one, and his was uh, anti semitism. He was he wanted to expel the Jews. In fact, he wanted to expel all the writings in the New Testament except for Luke, Acts, and uh, and and Paul's letters. But m- my point being, this is a perennial problem. It doesn't have a solution. Okay. And I am happy to use this point to pivot to our third article, but I want to make absolutely clear that you and the listeners hear this. You are now talking about a definition of racism and systemic racism that is quite different from D'Angelo et al., who say it is a white person's problem of white culture imposing on non-white people except Asians whom we don't talk about. Right. No, listen, this is why this is why so many of us are critical of D'Angelo from on my side. I've not heard anyone critical of D'Angelo from your side. I've heard people lift up D'Angelo and Austin Channing Brown, whose chapter of her books uh, do not decry whiteness, but white people, and uh, whose arguments are also circular and anecdotal and just not very good. And people say, this is the solution, but they're not talking about the kind of racism that you are now talking about, which is, I think, far more important to talk about. Well, and I will say that so I think that there's a different category when you're talking about Austin Channing Brown than you are from uh, D'Angelo, and that is because uh, D'Angelo is proffering a, a white solution to white supremacy, and I don't think that works. That's different from uh, hearing the voices of people who claim marginalization and generously listening to what they have to say. I, I'm not saying you have to accept it, but that is a different paradigm. I don't think they fit in the same category. That that white audiences pick it up, I don't know. That's a different that's a different discussion. I can't I can't I can't argue for what audiences are doing, but those are two different categories for me. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, I, and I'm wondering if you have anything else to say toward Connolly who says look at look at the United States, especially the 20th century. Every single and this is this is now extrapolations from his article that I'm now making, but every single child has 12 years of education at no cost to the parent guaranteed. <laughs> uh, every single person has, has opportunities and it depends on the values of the family, etc. cetera. Um, but those arguments are so silly because the very, the, the very group of people, who are arguing that we made all the progress we needed to have made in the 60s are the same group of people, not the same individuals, but the same group of people who are arguing in the 60s that separate but equal is just fine. Look, we're it's true that we're further along than we used to be, but that doesn't mean we're done. And I think it I think this is I'm using the small c conservatism when I say this, but I think that is a fundamental error an epistemological error of small C conservatism. And I can point to the, I'll give you the 
epistemological errors of progressivism too, but this is a fundamental error, which is to assume that because we did something in the past, we're done. And we should hold on to that uh, as though that's, you know, I know, I know you took us kicking and screaming, but it was the right thing to do. I mean, it's, it fascinates me when conservatives talk about MLK and what MLK stood for, because MLK was hated by conservatives at the time. Um, and he was he was on Hoover's uh, most dangerous list, and the reason for this is because uh, that was progressive at the time. And progressivism is uh, is an unfolding epistemology, which says that yeah, we're here now. Now let's find the next best thing we can be doing. And by the way, that's what I think Paul is describing when he says uh, uh, to the to the church in Thessaloniki to excel still more. This yeah. is idea that you've gone this far. Now let's look for the next thing. Okay, but hold on. I'm not going to let you tie Paul's advice to the church to what a nation should be doing with its people, because those are two very different things that unless it's a theocracy, which we are not. And I think, right? Well, no, I don't think so, because I'm not saying I'm coming over there. I'm, I'm, huh? You grant me that or I'm coming over there. <laughs> No, because I'm telling you, I'm not because it's not the, the idea of excelling still more is not uniquely Christian. Come on. I think it's a terrible policy to say my my policy of life is to always be unfolding this way. And so things that are done today that are really great and awesome and make sense, I'm naturally going to turn my nose up at it the next generation. I know that's why you that's why your solution to uh uh your economic theory is couched within a 17th century author. Scott, mine's not much better it's a 19th century. <laughs> enlightenment theory and the principles articulated by Adam Smith are as true today and evidenced evidenced today and it is evidence that collectivism doesn't work as an economic policy. So just because that's isn't it chronological snobbery to say just because it's old it's no longer valid? Yes, that is chronological snobbery. And by the way, I I ascribe to a very ancient set of values uh, that are two thousand years old. So I, <laughs> that's true. Ain't nothing progressive about two thousand year old tablet. No, or no. But uh, I don't know how we got off on this direction. Do you? Just that. In the 60s, when the United States made some pretty strong moves to say, you know what, we have got to make every citizen of this country have the opportunity to go to school for 12 years and to be treated equally under the law in every way, not just some ways. That was a huge paradigm shift. That's Ward Connolly's argument, and it's mine too. And I think it is that we do ourselves a disservice when we forget that. I know. And I will, I want to say something in response to affirmative in response to that, which okay. is, I think you're absolutely right that we do not, we, the, and this is an epistemological error of progressivism is that we do not take stock of what we've come through and, you know, look at each one another and pat ourselves on the back. Um, I was, I was at a, this is not a Lowe's. This is a love's story. Love's truck stop. <laughs> On Father's Day uh, a couple of years ago, I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast or not, but I was on a, a truck stop on Father's Day in South Alabama, and um, I'm walking out. There's some black men in the bathroom, and and then as we're walking out, uh, this this guy walks in. He's 
every ounce a hillbilly. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how else to put it. I mean, he was just full on hillbilly. And as I'm I'm walking out, you know, there's no door. It's just kind of that for the truck stop bathrooms, you know, you walk around the, the kind of the S path there. Mm-hmm. No door to open. Mm-hmm. So as the hillbilly walks in, he runs into um, an African-American man, just smack dab ran into his chest. And he steps back and he goes, oh, excuse me. Happy Father's Day, brother. And he walks on. And I, I, re- I was watching that whole thing happen. And I thought to myself, I did not expect for that hillbilly to say, happy Father's Day, brother. And here I am uh, judging whether he looks like a hillbilly or not and probably you know, probably racist and probably dates his cousin. I got all kinds of assumptions about this kid, but his, but he's going to say happy father's day. That's his gut reaction to running into a black man on his way into the bathroom. Mm. And, uh, this kind of gets back to my essay, uh, my, my speaker's corner essay that, uh, that I did. I, I think you are absolutely right that we do a very poor job as a culture of looking back and saying, Whew, that was, that was tough. Well, we made it now. It's okay for us to talk about what to do next, but I don't think it's fair to talk about what's to do next. If we don't also acknowledge not just the struggle, but what we've done. Uh, and I think that is a fair criticism of progressivism. It's a fair criticism of much of the conversation that happens around race right now is we just assume, well, you, I mean, you did that much, but it still stinks and so terrible on you. You know, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't recognize the blood, sweat and tears that are involved in the, the changes in epistemology, the changes in, um, in, in, in how we think about one another, those changes aren't, uh, appreciated uh, sufficiently. So like I said, I can talk all day long if we need to about the, the epistemological errors of uh, progressivism. And that's a huge one. Well, and I'll say one more thing. And that is we can't forget as citizens that in this country, it is completely legal to hate your fellow citizen for whatever reason you want. And as Christians, that's our burden to help overcome through persuasion. But we can never, through the law, address whether a person should hate another person. Well, you don't want us to. That's right. I don't want us to try to address through the law. If if laws permit legal activity, then the rest of it is up to persuasion. Yeah. and I know you don't want it. I, I want to make it clear that doesn't mean I agree that... We cannot. We can never do that. That's your interpretation of the okay. Constitution. Yeah. All right. Okay. Now, <laughs> well, we have uh, two minutes to talk about. That's okay. That's with, what it's whether the Christians need a moral awakening. I said, why don't you talk about it? Because you probably have the only positive things to say about it. Well, I do think uh, Robert Jones is the author of a, a book, "White Too Long: The Legacy of White Supremacy," and American Christianity, and uh, wrote an article, which is in, in many ways a kind of summary uh, or a pressy of his own of his own work. And this is in um, the uh, the Atlantic. 
entitled White Christian America Needs a Moral Awakening. By confronting their faith's legacy of racism, white Christians can build a better future for themselves and their fellow Americans. And the fundamental component of his argument is that evangelicalism was, was fundamentally white supremacist. Shall I read the money quote? Yeah. This is his central claim. Through the entire American story, white Christianity has served as the central source of moral legitimacy for a society explicitly built to value the lives of white people over black people. That is his central claim. Yeah. Uh, Much of what I think he's putting in front of us is is a question about how not just a, an indictment against about the past, but also a, a suggestion that we need a new framework uh, for thinking about for thinking about what Christianity can can how Christianity can contribute to the idea of reconciliation. In fact, he doesn't believe that reconciliation is the goal. He thinks that white Christians uh, need to seek justice, not reconciliation. So, so part of what he does uh, here and elsewhere is kind of rehearse the historic, the antecedents for where we are, the history of white supremacy and the and the relationship between white supremacy and Christianity. Do you think that that history is uh, inaccurate, an inaccurate portrayal of where we where we were? I don't say we evangelicals. I um, resist the totalization of how he describes it because I think there were a lot of white evangelicals who who don't feel the way he says they felt. Did I miss that, Scott? No. I. It's hard for me to try to read his history with any validity because of his the survey that he developed and spends the rest of his essay talking about. So I, I, I didn't. It's his ethos is pretty shot with me. But he goes through various denominations, um, well, the Southern Baptist denomination. And I just, if totalizing is not right, then I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that because I don't know if he totalizes. Well, he does He does tend to focus on, at least within his results in the survey, he does focus on majorities and interprets something from those majorities. I mean, he talks about how, for example— this wasn't his survey, but I think it was PRRI, uh, that 80%, 86% of white evangelical Protestants, along with um, 70% of white mainline Protestants and 70% of white Catholics, believe that the Confederate flag is more a symbol of Southern pride than of racism. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about that? Because I have- So he's making an argument based upon majorities. I mean, it's a majority. That's not my problem with it. My problem is if I'm given a survey that says, what do you think the Confederate flag means? I probably am going to put it's a symbol of the Southern more than I'm going to put it's a symbol of racism or racial superiority because it's a survey that I don't want to look bad on. There's some methodological problems I have here, too. Much of this article is based on what he calls a racism index that's based on 15 questions on a survey. 15 questions. And I want to say, really, Mr. Jones, is that is you're going to draw all the inferences you do from and, and develop a racism index? Uh, comprising 15 separate questions that, and I'm I'm looking at his, at his text right here, 15 separate questions that cover four broad areas: attitudes about Confederate symbols, 
racial inequality and African-American economic mobility? Well, I would be called a racist to him because I think uh, African-American mobility and non-African-American mobility have nothing to do with race. It has to do with many other things, but not race. That, so on his survey, I would be a racist because of that. No, on his survey, you score differently than non uh, than than folks who are not associated with Christianity, and I think that is the argument. It's com- it, it, what what your score is is meaningless. When what your score is in conjunction with a whole bunch of other people's score that go also go to church, and how that is different from folks who don't go to church, that's compelling. That's interesting. So, I mean the. That you believe that the Confederate flag is a symbol of Southern pride or whatever it is, that that may be what you believe, and that's fine. That doesn't make you a racist. But that eighty percent of a group of people who belong to uh, churches view it one way, yeah. and many and and many uh, who don't go to church view it a different way is interesting. We should talk about it. Well. I hear you, and I hear your explanation, but here's how he describes his pattern. White Christians are more likely than white religiously unaffiliated Americans to register high scores. And to him, that is interesting enough to talk about. And to me, his markers are invalid for it to produce meaningful differences. I don't think his markers are legitimate. I I am poking holes in his methodology of the questions he asks. Well, I haven't seen the survey. Have you? Uh, he's to his descriptions of the survey, Mister Man. No, no, no. I mean, I, I wasn't being snarky. Oh. I was. I mean, I mean literally, <laughs> I was wondering about his descriptions uh, are sufficient for my snark. Yeah, and I wondered what the. I was. I was wondering if you if you read anything about interrater reliability and validity and those things. But mm-hmm. I, uh, which only hold up statistically. I mean, I think it means something. But but he does kind of summarize all of this. And I think a way that would be difficult, I think, for you to hear. And he says, putting this in plain language, our models reveal that they're, that the more racist attitudes a person holds, the more likely he or she is to identify as white Christian and vice versa. <laughs> right. Right. Which uh, apparently the editors... And you think the only explanation for that is that it's a bad survey? That's the only conclusion you can draw from that is he has a bad survey. Well, he arrives... At that sentence you just read, by looking at his survey data. So yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to read in the capsule that he's writing in. It may be true that racist attitudes attend to to Christians, but I, I, it needs to be a different article we're reading to talk about it. For example, gotcha. at where at my workplace, there are people who say the fact that Sunday morning is so segregated where black churches meet together and white churches meet together and there's hardly any crossover is evidence of racism. Well, I disagree with that as a piece of evidence. And so I, if I talk to those people, I talk about it on those terms, not on these articles terms, you see. And so when this article, when this man, Bob J- Robert Jones, writes this article, that's what I'm looking at. So if we want to talk about whether white Christians are more racist than non-Christians, that's we have to decide what we're where how we're going to talk about it. That's that's the logic I'm coming at you with. Yeah. Um I I really want to focus a little bit further down in his article. Okay. Um which is uh, I think he's I think he's on to something. Personally I I think he's on to something and I think that 
much of their rhetoric is consistent with the um, with the data that he finds. And here's here's an example. Uh, he said, for example, when the Southern Baptist Convention leaders issued a formal apology for defending slavery, opposing civil rights, and, quote, condoning and or perpetuating individual and systemic racism in our lifetime at their national convention in 1995, they coupled it with a piece of contrived cultural theater that seemed to imply that a kind of magical reconciliation had instantaneously occurred. Now, one of my questions for you is, why did they issue a formal apology for something that it turns out they didn't do because the survey is bad? I think many of us who look back at our past, and I think many in the, and I'm, I'm not Baptist, but I think many in the Southern Baptist Convention have looked back at the past and said, eh, no, we're not really happy with uh, some of the positions that we took, some of the ways that we, some of our curriculum in our schools, uh, in our seminaries, we're not happy with where we were. And so we are formally apologizing because we're not happy with where we were. Mm -hmm. So my point being, I think the apology in and of itself may be evidence that there was a problem. This part of his article is the most interesting to me. <laughs> Secondly, I think that what, uh, what he's really getting to is that, that Christian responses are oftentimes not very different from Starbucks closing their stores for a day and having uh, racial sensitivity training. I'm using my fingers as finger quotes. I like my, I like the listener can see them. But yeah, maybe I, can, I yeah, I can you know, what, I'm doing it like, you know, when Chris Farley does, maybe I don't bathe regularly. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah. It, in other words, that it's not really all that different. And I will say that um, an institution that, I admire and appreciate uh, for a number of reasons, but uh, a Christian institution that I know uh, was celebrating the the 50th anniversary of when uh, students, black students, were allowed to come to their institution. And the way that got celebrated was 50 years ago today, we allowed black students to come to our college. Instead of saying 50 years ago today, we stopped sinning. Right. Right? Right. But it turns into this quick, easy, uh, or as he uses the term, this uh, magical reconciliation that instantaneously occurred. We all of a sudden stopped doing that. And hallelujah, racism was over. Or, you know, I think I hear some conservatives use this term with, with Barack Obama's election. We were elected Barack Obama and hallelujah, racism is over. There's no hallelujah, things are done. And and I think this is especially true for us as Christians. And this is where I will come back and I'll whack my finger in your face and say, I think we have to, the church has to excel still more. I think we have a responsibility, regardless of whether the public does, we have a responsibility to call people to excel still more. I agree. I just don't want to see it in the laws. Because you, Scott, have the right to say, Cole, you are not doing it right and you're not doing it well. But, but how are we going to do that if we can't come to terms with the fact that we've screwed up in the past and that we may be even screwed up in the present? How can we do that if we're not able to confess what we've done in the past and where we are in the present? How can we do that if we don't confront the condition? Well, Scott, we, you and I can have that discussion, but we can't take it to the national theater because the national theater is about laws, not about hearts. And you have absolutely the right to say to me, 
and to your church and to my church and to all the Christian brothers and sisters you know, you are not acting appropriately because of these things. And we, the church, are not giving appropriate opportunities or love or what have you. But that is not a national issue. That is a church issue. I'm saying that the, the nation will never figure it out until we as a church start to figure out how to do this. Well, we, we have to. Not, well, now, wait a minute. That's a different argument. No, I'm saying we have to take it seriously for the world's sake. Yes. And the, the, our fellow citizens should, should be able to look at us and see, look how awesome the Christians are doing this. But they shouldn't say, look at the laws that the Christians are putting on the books to make us behave in certain ways. Because- Fine, yeah, I get that. I get that. But that's not my that's not my point. My point is as long as we're going to act like Starbucks, we're going to get Starbucks results. I agree. As long as we are acting like Starbucks, Starbucks is going to keep getting Starbucks results. I agree. And my frustration is I think that the the that the author is absolutely Jones is absolutely correct that America needs a moral awakening. And that specifically white Christian Americans need a moral awakening. We have to figure out how to do this. We have to figure out how to talk about it. We have to lead because if we don't, then we just do the same thing that Starbucks does. Well, And it stinks. Tell me something that the white church uh, is doing wrong. What is an example of a way? Well, that, I mean, I guess the reason I'm yelling a little bit is... <laughs> George is getting upset. As soon as, as soon as I point to evidence, then I hear... Uh, folks say, well, you know, I mean, that's not really evidence. I mean, that could be something else. We have to come to terms with, I think in the confessional ways, I think the church has to come to terms with, we don't know how to fix this. We don't know. We don't even know what the problem is. We don't know why we created the problem. I think the first step to the church behaving in more love is for bold people like you to say, this is how Christians are getting it wrong. And this, these are ways that we can be examples to, to the world of getting it right. But we can't be vague about it. We have to be specific about it. Yeah, I think that's a really fair criticism is you can't just, you, you can't just make the claim and the claim stands up on its own, right? That's right. Yeah, that's entirely fair. And as usual, you're a fair man. <laughs>